You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 78, Advancing on Quebec. So back in episode 72, Continental General Philip Schuyler and his second-in-command, General Richard Montgomery, slowly and deliberately took control of Lake Champlain, Fort Chambly, Fort Saint-Jean, and finally the city of Montreal. Opposing them in all of this was British Major General Guy Carleton. Carleton is the last of the major generals in North America that I've neglected to introduce, so I thought this would be a good time as any to get to know General Carleton. Unlike most British generals, Guy Carleton did not come from an aristocratic family. He was born to a respectable but common family in Northern Ireland in 1724. His father died when he was 14, and his mother married a minister. He received little benefits or education. As a Protestant, though, at least he was eligible to join the army and could pursue a career as a commissioned officer. In 1742, following the outbreak of the War of Austrian Succession, the 17-year-old Carleton acquired a commission as an ensign in the British Army. His unit participated in the Battle of Culloden, which I've mentioned in many previous episodes, as it was an important incident where the Duke of Cumberland ruthlessly put down the Jacobite uprising in Scotland. Shortly after the battle, Carleton received a promotion to lieutenant. About this same time, he became friends with a fellow junior officer named James Wolfe. Wolfe was only a young major at the time, but as the son of a general, his friendship helped Carleton to make connections with more senior officers. After the war ended, career advancement became much more difficult. Even so, in 1751, Carleton joined the first foot guards and soon got a promotion to captain. Through his friendship with Wolfe, he was able to get a position as a guide to Charles Lennox, who would later become the Duke of Richmond and Secretary of State for Southern Affairs. If you did not come from a good family, the only path up the chain of command was to gain the favor of those in high places. Richmond's influence helped propel Carleton's career forward. With the outbreak of the Seven Years' War, Carleton moved up to Lieutenant Colonel. He served in defense of Hanover against the French. Unfortunately, his command did not do particularly well. Without good family connections and without looking extremely impressive on the battlefield, chances for upward mobility began to wane. Perhaps more significantly, Carleton made disparaging comments about the Hanoverian soldiers who fought alongside him. Word of this got back to King George II, who, as Elector of Hanover, did not take well to one of his officers, speaking critically of his fellow Hanoverians. 
when now General Wolfe asked to bring Carleton to America to help with the siege of Louisburg, the king refused the commission. A year after that, now Major General Wolfe once again requested to bring his friend Carleton to serve as quartermaster for his army during the siege of Quebec. Once again, the king refused. However, he finally relented after Lord Richmond got several other influential officers to convince the king to change his mind. Colonel Carleton served with distinction at Quebec, but received a head wound and returned to Britain after the battle for recovery. He recovered in time to serve in the West Indies during the later parts of the Seven Years' War, including a stint in Cuba, where he commanded a young captain named Richard Montgomery. After the war in 1766, Carleton's friend and patron, Lord Richmond, became Secretary of State for the Southern Department, which included North America. He got Carleton transferred back to Quebec as military commander and also as Lieutenant Governor of Canada. A prominent political position with no family background was unusual. I think this speaks highly of the impression he made on several highly influential men in government. Of course, it was also probably helpful that King George II by this time was dead and could no longer hold a grudge against the young officer. When the governor of Canada resigned in 1768, Carleton became captain general and governor-in-chief of the Quebec province. His reputation continued to improve from a well-run colony, and he seemed to be reasonably well-liked by those in London as well as those in Quebec. In 1770, Carleton returned to London, leaving his lieutenant governor, Hector Theopolis de Cramahay, in charge. Now, despite his name and French family background, Cramahay was born in Ireland and had also served as a career officer in the British Army. Carleton ended up spending several years in Britain, during which time he received a promotion to major general, lobbied for passage of the Quebec Act, one of the coercive acts, and also found time to marry a 19-year-old noblewoman. He was 48 at the time, by the way. So Carleton and his wife returned to Quebec in late 1774, in time to react to the outbreak of war in the spring of 1775. When Benedict Arnold attacked St. Jean in May of 1775, Carleton immediately deployed troops and, as you recall, almost captured Ethan Allen and his Green Mountain Boys as a result. Carleton had few soldiers in Canada, though. Before the war, he only had four regiments of regulars to control the entire province. Following Lexington and Concord, General Gage ordered him to send two of those regiments to Boston, leaving Carleton with less than 800 regulars. Carleton had committed almost all of his regulars to defending Fort St. Jean, just north of Lake Champlain. As I discussed back in episode 72, his former subordinate, now Continental General Richard Montgomery, laid siege to St. Jean in the fall of 1775, finally taking the fort in early November. Carleton was in Montreal when St. Jean fell, and was nearly captured when Montgomery's forces took the city a few days later. Carleton attempted to move his small fleet downriver to Quebec. With the wind against him, and with Continentals now in control of much of the river, he soon found his fleet under attack by Continental Colonel Easton's artillery. 
Easton sent word to Carleton that he was prepared to blow his fleet out of the water unless he surrendered. Unable to have the winds on his side, Carleton agreed to surrender his fleet on November 15th. Easton, however, had pulled off a bluff. He had nowhere near enough cannons to destroy the ships. If Carleton had attempted to push past the battery, he almost certainly would have brought the ships back to safety in Quebec. Although Carleton surrendered his fleet, he opted not to surrender himself. On the night of November 16th, Carleton dressed himself as a French peasant and got into a canoe, where he quietly paddled past the Patriot camp. A few miles downstream, he found the home of a friendly local and caught a few hours sleep. The next morning, he found a squad of Patriots at the door. They were demanding quarters. While they argued with the owner, Carleton, still dressed as a French civilian, calmly walked out the door and began walking downstream. He soon hailed a British ship, the Fell, and caught a ride back to Quebec. Meanwhile, his second-in-command surrendered the fleet and the crew was taken prisoner. Now, at the same time all of this was happening, Benedict Arnold was marching another set of Continental soldiers across the wilderness of Maine, as I discussed two weeks ago in episode 75. When the colonists heard that Arnold had successfully gotten through the wilderness and reached the outskirts of Quebec, patriots everywhere celebrated. They compared his march to the famous Hannibal's march across the Alps to attack Rome. Colonel Enos, who had abandoned Arnold and returned to Cambridge, faced a court-martial for abandoning the mission. Fortunately for him, the only witnesses in Cambridge were the officers who retreated with him. They all testified that his decision was perfectly reasonable and that they all would have died otherwise. Now, the fact that those who did not give up made it through seems to contradict that notion, but the court acquitted Colonel Enos. Despite the acquittal, Enos resigned his commission a short time later and spent the remainder of the war as an inconsequential militia officer in what is today Vermont. On November 3rd, the same day Montgomery took Fort St. John, Arnold and most of his scattered force were within about 30 miles of Quebec. Many of the nearly 650 soldiers were still scattered. The wilderness march had left the men in terrible condition. Some of the men had eaten their moccasins and were marching through the snow barefoot. They needed time to eat and recover. They also found that water had damaged most of their ammunition, so that they only had about five good rounds per man. Even so, Arnold's force made its way toward Quebec, setting up a camp on the other side of the river on November 8th. Had he arrived a few days earlier, he might have taken the city without a fight. Governor Carleton was still down in Montreal, and almost his entire army had been captured at St. Jean, and was by this time marching south as prisoners of war. That left Lieutenant Governor Cramahay still in charge at Quebec. His defense force at that point consisted of a few hundred British sailors from the Navy ships that happened to be in Quebec at the time, along with some crew members collected from merchant vessels. The French inhabitants of Quebec expressed zero interest in joining a militia to defend the city, and they demanded that Cramahay negotiate a surrender that would protect their property. On November 8th, the same day that Arnold's men began to encamp across the river from Quebec, 
a ship, the Lizard, arrived from Newfoundland carrying guns, money, militia uniforms, and about 100 volunteers under the command of Captain Malcolm Fraser, a retired British officer who had participated in the capture of Quebec during the French and Indian War. A few days later, more support would arrive under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Alan McLean, another veteran officer of the British Army. McLean had raised a regiment of Scottish Highlander immigrants who had settled in Canada and New York since the end of the French and Indian War. Most were experienced combat veterans who formed into a regiment known as the Royal Highland Emigrants. A Cramahay, who a few days before had been contemplating how he was going to explain to officials in London how he had lost Quebec, happily turned over military command to McLean. The new commander at once set to work building up defenses and forcing any locals capable of fighting into a militia. Within days, he had a force of over 1,100 defenders, including about 200 of his emigrants' regiment along with about 50 sailors or artificers. The bulk of the defenders were relatively untrained militia. There were about 90 more Scottish volunteers, 300 militia from British settlers in the area, and another 480 from French-speaking settlers. McLean set about turning his defenders into a military unit. He did not have to worry about an immediate attack, Arnold's smaller force across the river, as I said, was still recovering from its march. On top of that, a terrible rainstorm had made any assault impossible for several days. McLean took the time to drill his men, convince the civilians that the Patriots would sack and loot the city if allowed inside, and required every capable man to do his duty. By November 13th, the weather had calmed enough for Colonel Arnold to begin his assault. Arnold had assembled about 40 canoes, meaning he would need multiple crossings to get his 650 men across the river. He moved his men across overnight, but by morning only had about 500 men across. Arnold used the same path used by General Wolfe years earlier to lead his invading army up the cliffs to the Plains of Abraham. Once on the plains, Arnold held a council of war with his officers to discuss an immediate assault on the city. Captain Morgan supported such an assault, but most of the other officers opposed the idea. They did not have all their men across the river yet, most of their scaling ladders had not come across, and without ladders or cannon there was no way to get through or over the city walls. They also had several sentries detect the river crossing and were sure the defenders would be ready for them. In fact, the defenders were not ready. The main gate was unlocked and guarded by a single sentry. Had they attacked that night, they probably would have been able to enter the city before anyone could put up a defense. Instead, the Continentals took over farms and other buildings around the city and awaited reinforcements. In the morning, Arnold marched his army out onto the plains of Abraham. The element of surprise, of course, was long gone. The defenders had assembled on the city walls. Arnold had hoped to tempt them to come out onto the fields and fight him. McLean and others, however, remembered how the French commander Montcalm had lost the city to Wolfe and the British in the last war. They wisely opted to stay behind their walls where the enemy could not reach them. 
Around sundown that day, Arnold sent an officer with a letter for Cramahay offering terms of surrender. McLean, however, had no interest in allowing anyone to approach the city to discuss any surrender. He had his men fire a cannon at the approaching officer, even though he was accompanied by a flag of truce and a drummer. The party fled back to safety. The next morning they tried again, only to be met with the same response. Finally, Arnold sent a woman with the letter. By some accounts, the woman was Jemima Warner, the same teenaged widow who had lost her husband on the march through the wilderness. This time, the defenders allowed the woman to approach the city without firing on her. She got the note to Colonel McLean, who promptly tossed the note into the fire and the woman into a prison cell. He did release the woman a few days later, and she returned to the Patriot lines. If the woman really was Warner who delivered the message, the release did her no good. A few days later, a defender shot Warner in the head while she was delivering supplies to the soldiers on the front lines besieging Quebec. She died instantly. On November 16th, Cramahay held his own council of war to discuss whether Quebec should hold out or surrender. McLean, of course, attended this council and shut down any talk of surrender. He pointed out that the defenders outnumbered the attackers by two to one. Even if Montgomery's larger force arrived and outnumbered them, the defenders still had a better position behind walls and with artillery. They had enough food in the city to get through the winter and expected a relief force from London in the spring if necessary. Also, the enemy had not been able to cut off the city from outside resources. They were still receiving food and fuel from the other side of town. In the end, the council unanimously agreed to defend Quebec. Two days later, on November 18th, Arnold gave up the siege and moved his soldiers about 20 miles upstream in the direction of Montreal. Arnold's men were pretty much out of ammunition. Until they received more supplies and reinforcements, they had no hope of taking Quebec. As his men marched upstream, they watched the ship fell, sail back past them toward Quebec. It arrived in the city carrying Governor Carleton, who once again assumed command. A frustrated Arnold wrote a letter to Washington that had he arrived only ten days earlier, he would have taken the city. And to me that seems right. Had Arnold assaulted the city before the Highlanders arrived, they almost certainly would have capitulated without a fight. Taking Quebec probably would have been enough to get much of the local population to support the Patriot cause. Most of them just didn't want to get caught on the losing side. Since those sabotage maps probably delayed Arnold by several weeks, Canada may owe its independence from the U.S. today to one loyalist mapmaker in New England. But unable to take the city, Arnold had to wait for support from Montgomery. Now, Montgomery, after breaking the British force at St. Jean, had an easy time taking Montreal as the few remaining defenders there simply fled for Quebec. Unfortunately for Montgomery, he promised some of his men that he would release them early from their enlistments once they captured Montreal. The men's enlistments ended at the end of December anyway. Once Montreal fell, those soldiers, along with most of the rest of the army, demanded to be released from service. 
they had taken Montreal as promised. It was a cold and miserable winter, and most of them were sick. They were ready to go home. Montgomery, however, knew that if they did not take Quebec that winter, the British would almost certainly send a relief force in the spring, which would not only retake Quebec, but would also likely move down to Montreal, St. John, and probably keep going into New York. After several weeks, Montgomery convinced at least a portion of his army to stay, though nearly half of them packed up and went home. Most of those leaving were New Englanders, including the Green Mountain Boys. After Montreal, most of Montgomery's reduced army consisted of a few hundred New Yorkers and a few Connecticut companies headed by General Wooster, as well as about 200 Canadian militia who had joined the cause. Even most of those soldiers made clear to Montgomery that they would stick it out another month, but when their enlistments ended on December 31st, they would be going home too. If Montgomery was going to take Quebec, he had a deadline. The mission so far had been a difficult one. Even Montgomery himself considered quitting. After several of his officers attacked him for being too friendly with captured British officers and treating them too well, Montgomery told them that he would resign his command since nobody seemed to like his leadership. At this, the men immediately backtracked and apologized. Even so, Montgomery sent word to General Schuyler back at Ticonderoga that he was strongly considering resigning at the end of the year. Schuyler, after seeing half of Montgomery's army pass through Ticonderoga on their way home, passed along Montgomery's letter about leaving the army and included a letter of his own that said he was considering it as well. Montgomery, though, would see the current expedition to its end. On November 28th, he left a small force in Montreal and then moved to meet up with Arnold's force closer to Quebec. He advanced forward with about 300 Continentals and another 200 Canadian militia. When they met up with Arnold's depleted force on December 2nd, the combined force would total about 1,100 men, plus a few field artillery pieces. Arnold's men were also heartened by the fact that Montgomery provided them with more food, ammunition, and winter clothing. Meanwhile, back in Quebec, General Carleton took hope from the 300 fighters that the Highlanders had put together as a defense force. Carleton took things a step further when he forced many more civilians to join in the defense or leave the city. As a result, he soon had a fighting force of about 1,800 defenders. So, although the Continentals were outnumbered and attacking an entrenched enemy, Montgomery and Arnold were finally ready to begin their combined assault on Quebec. And so, next week, Montgomery and Arnold actually will begin their final assault on Quebec. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. 
You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, welcome back to another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. Before I get to this week's book, I want to mention that I've started a Patreon page. For those of you unfamiliar with Patreon, it allows people to donate to podcasts and other artists online so that we can continue with our work. If you are so inclined, you can make a voluntary monthly contribution toward the support of this podcast and get some special access to certain aspects of this podcast, such as advanced access to some of my materials. Now, I know some podcasts hide transcripts behind a paywall or make special episodes for contributors only. I've made a conscious effort to keep pretty much everything up and available for free. Maybe that doesn't make the most financial sense for me, but I really want everyone to have access to this work. Anyway, if you're in a position to support this podcast, Patreon is a way you can do that. Just go to patreon.com and search for the American Revolution podcast. I'm also happy to take one-time contributions to my PayPal account, for which there is a link on my website, www.amrevpodcast.com. If you're not in a position to help, I completely understand, and please continue to enjoy this podcast at no cost. Alright, enough about money. Today's podcast continued the American attempts to capture Quebec. Arnold and Montgomery's forces finally combined and reached the gates of Quebec City. Capturing Quebec would not only be a major blow to British pride, but would also deny London a major city from which to launch attacks on the lower 13 colonies. The ability of the Americans to launch a two-pronged attack with Montgomery fighting his way up from New York and Arnold moving his army across the New England wilderness was a pretty impressive feat on its own. Both men's national reputations were definitely secured based on their determination and force of will to get to Quebec in the first place. It's really hard today to appreciate the logistical efforts involved in such a move without the modern conveniences we have today. Today's book recommendation focuses on that. The book is called Through a Howling Wilderness, Benedict Arnold's March to Quebec by Thomas A. Desjardins. As you might guess from the title, the book focuses on the Wilderness March and the attack on Quebec. First published in 2005, uh, the book itself is well-researched and written. It's rather short, about 250 pages, and about 200 of that is actual text. The author, whose last name I'm probably butchering, I, I called him Hardine earlier, it may be Desjardin. Um, sorry, however, it's really pronounced. Uh, but he's a Maine native. He's written several other history books related to Maine, 
The others have been about the Civil War. Uh, he also works for the state of Maine and has taught history at the University of Maine and Bowdoin College. Like the author of the book I recommended a couple weeks ago, Desjardins is a descendant of someone who participated in the events at Quebec. He has a real passion for the topic, and his work relies on primary sources and provides what I think is an accurate as an account as possible. If you want to hear more about the author, I've also included a link on my blog to a talk that Desjardins gave on the events, which was recorded by C-SPAN a few years ago. As I said, you can get a link at the end of the episode on my blog at blog.amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you will join me next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.